Good morning, everyone. We who find it so hard to submit and place ourselves under the authority of God and others have the privilege today of focusing on the idea of Jesus and submission. And focusing on what Jesus did, why it makes all the difference, and how we should live as a result. So please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. If you're able, please stand with me. I'm going to read verses 21 through 25. My voice is kind of weird today. I caught some germs the other day, got infected by them, and now I'm a bit sick. So I promise you I will not shake your hand today. I will not hug you or otherwise invade your space any more than I already am. If you're in the front rows... You're in your own risk, okay? It already is the spit zone, usually, the overspray zone. Now it is the, it is the germ zone as well. Seriously, though, what I hope is that God will drive this passage deep into our souls and infect us in the best possible way with its glorious, transforming gospel truth. So 1 Peter 2, verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were strain like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that... Lord Jesus, that you are sovereign, and thank you, Lord, that your word is true. And we pray, Lord, that you would, you would teach us today, that you would have your way with our hearts, and that we would truly, in the, in the best possible way, be infected with this glorious gospel truth so that we would affect others with, with this truth. We commit this time to you in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. So, Jesus and submission. Peter has been following somewhat of a pattern here as we've gone through 1 Peter. First, what he does is he highlights the privilege we have in Christ. He highlights the amazing blessings we have in Christ. Things like being caused to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And then what he does is he moves to behavior. So here's the blessing, here's the privilege, and now here's how you should live as a result. And he has shown us how relationships are transformed by following Christ. How the gospel transforms relationships as we follow Jesus. So this idea of submission, we've been looking at it for several weeks now. This idea of being under God's authority and placing yourself under the authority that, other, that God has put in your life of other people. We looked 
A couple weeks ago at, at being submissive to civil authorities, really tough thing for us to do. Police and government officials and other people, volunteer or paid, that we are called to submit to. We looked last week at something even tougher, the employer-employee relationships and, and how you submit in those. And next week, what everyone's looking forward to, I know you can't wait, submission in marriage. Peter speaking to both husbands and wives. We'll look at that two weeks in a row. Wives, you get six verses. Husbands, you only get one verse. It's all we can handle, I guess. Seriously, submission in marriage, not an easy thing to do. But what we see today in these verses, 21 through 25 of 1 Peter 2, is Peter is focusing on on Jesus and submission, what he did in regards to submission. And here's the idea. Here's what Jesus did in regards to submission. He submitted himself to suffer and die as a sacrifice for sin to save us. He submitted himself to suffer and die as a sacrifice for sin in order to save lost sinners. Peter calls them the elect in verse 1. Verse 21 says this, For to this you have been called... Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. An example is a pattern. It is the idea of even tracing letters. In those days, um, young children would be taught to, to write by tracing over the letters of Greek and Hebrew words. It's almost the idea of, of dot to dot or paint by numbers, as some of you may have, have done in the past or still do today. The idea is that Jesus laid down a pattern for us to follow. It's, it's kind of like playing follow the leader. Usually we see, think of that as a game. This is not a game. This is life and death. We're to follow our leader, the Lord Jesus. And the example that he has given is one of suffering. Suffering. The sinless Savior sacrificed himself to save lost sinners, and he did so through suffering. In verse 21, Peter says, to this you've been called. You've been called to suffer. Now, Peter has already highlighted the heavenly calling of believers. In chapter 2, verse 9, he says that God has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In chapter 3, verse 9, we're called to return blessing for cursing. In chapter 5, verse 10, we are called to his eternal glory in Christ. But here... Peter does an about-face on his previous views regarding suffering while on earth. In fact, you've got to go back to Matthew, 20, Matthew 16 to see Peter's previous views. And it, it happened in a context where Jesus was portraying and, and, and really predicting his death and resurrection before the fact. And Matthew 16, 21, it says that from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So here's Jesus telling his disciples all about why he came to earth. Right? He came to save sinners. Here he is telling them about his death and his resurrection. And Peter takes him aside. Peter literally rebukes Jesus and says, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. He's saying, you're not going to suffer. 
Suffering's not a part of the deal. You're not going to suffer. And Jesus turns to Peter and he gives them the sharpest of rebukes. Get behind me, Satan, he says. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter, though, now does an about face, a, a, a whole 180 on the idea of suffering. And now Peter says, You believers have been called to suffer unjustly. You are called to trust God when suffering for doing right. So Peter has described our heavenly calling, and he does not hide from our earthly calling, that of suffering. And Peter is not just referring to servants in the context here. It's right after servants, be submissive to your masters. He is writing to all Christians. This is written in a general way to, to go to all Christians. One of Peter's favorite psalms that he, he loved to quote was Psalm 34, which says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Out of them all the Lord delivers. The idea today is that Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. We don't like to think of suffering, though. We like to claim the peace of Christ while expecting no tribulation in this world. We actually think of suffering as something that must come upon us because we've been bad. We've been bad followers of Christ. We've been, we've been disobedient in some way. We are actually surprised when suffering happens. And Peter is telling us right here, don't be surprised. This is your vocation. This is your calling. Now, we would rather have Peter's self-serving advice to Jesus. This will never happen to you. We want to avoid suffering. But the teaching here is very clear. Christ suffered, so Christians are also called to suffering. You know, we're always living in, in wartime conditions, even though we like to think of life as all fun and games. Wouldn't that be great? We're always living in spiritual wartime conditions. Battles are raging, both seen and unseen. 2 Corinthians 10 gives us a, a picture of that battle. It says in verse 3, Though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. There are these battles raging. We wrestle not, Paul says, with flesh and blood, but with the world forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. There are battles raging seen and unseen. And there's the battle within. There's the battle in your heart. Peter has already addressed this. In chapter 2, he says this. He says, Abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. There's war going on in your soul. There's war going on outside of you. And as Christians, we are called to suffer for Christ. Suffer with Christ. People saved by God's grace in Christ freed from the power and penalty of sin, we who actually inflict suffering on others so often, we who often cause so much suffering are called to suffer. And it's not payback, it is our vocation in Christ. But I think it would be easy for us as believers to say, well, you know, we live in the West and, and we live in America and can what we go through on a daily basis really be considered suffering for Christ 
And I think that's a valid question. I think that's a very valid question. A lot of the little inconveniences of life we, we think of as suffering this big persecution, and really it's just, just a result of the fall. Maybe there isn't a lot of suffering for righteousness' sake in the West. We suffer due to our sin, right? All the time. We suffer for doing wrong, right? All the time. We suffer for making unwise choices, right? We suffer as part of this sin-stained, sin-infected world. But the kind of suffering that Peter has been talking about is suffering for your faith in Christ. A direct application of suffering because of your professed faith in Christ and your shining life that reflects the glory of God. I do think that we've been very good at insulating ourselves from, from suffering in the West, suffering for our faith. It's like we've decaffeinated the gospel. It's like we've pulled all the teeth out. In the days when Peter was writing, Christians were suffering horrible atrocities. We can read about them. Christians in those days were being accused of many things untrue. They were accused of hating mankind, accused of being idol worshipers, accused of disrupting businesses, and and accused of gross immorality, wrongly accused, even accused of being cannibals. We can read books of martyrs and of people present day of the persecuted church. There are books, there are ministries devoted to highlighting the, the plight of the suffering church. And we read those things and it seems so foreign to where we live. We who like to gather in air-conditioned rooms in padded seats. So I think that sometimes we wrongly identify suffering, especially in America, but I also think we often sell it short. And we say we're not suffering because people aren't chasing us down with Uzis. I think actually it's happening and it's more subtle in America. The pressure is more subtle. You can be ostracized for your faith. You can be marginalized. You can be disowned or shunned or even receive the silent treatment. A lot of different things can happen and they're on a more subtle level. They might be not trying to kill you, but they're going to try to ruin your reputation. I like the way that Albert Moeller puts it. He says it so clearly and so well. Regarding the current predicament of Christianity, both worldwide and in America. Here's what he says. He says, we are witnessing the inglorious end of a civilization birthed by the Christian faith. We are tracing the accelerating secularization of our own society. In the Middle East, Christianity is disappearing on the ground. Is disappearing on the ground. Historic Christian communities in Iraq, Syria, Egypt, and elsewhere are being decimated and destroyed, scattered by violence and threats of genocide. In Europe, the historic base of Christian culture and Christian missions, the European Union is so embarrassed about its Christian heritage that it refused even to acknowledge this truth when it framed its charter. Christianity is disappearing or declining under Islam and the domination of secularism. Church buildings in Britain, Canada, and elsewhere are now being routinely transformed into nightclubs, pubs, or even mosques. Then he says cultural Christianity is disappearing as fast as the morning mist, providing the church the opportunity and the challenge 
to make clear once again the radical difference between the gospel of Jesus Christ and the wisdom of the world. But with the disappearance of nominal Christianity comes a vast moral revolution with a new and ominous moral regime. The most basic moral convictions of Western civilization are being rejected in favor of erotic impulses. Erotic liberty now threatens even religious liberty in the great controversies of the era. The threats to religious liberty are real and present. Moeller goes on to say, we also face the realities of the millennial generation, the largest generation in American history. As Christian Smith and his associates have documented, the belief system held by the vast majority within this generation can be described as moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic, what I say is right is right. And therapeutic, I must feel good about myself in the process. It's not valid unless I feel good about myself. It's not remotely close to Christianity. Moeller says, where do they learn this belief system? From their parents and from their churches. He says, the total secularization of America's academic and intellectual culture is virtually a completed project. And Sex Week at Yale University advertises the rejection of even Christian morality in favor of the new revolutionaries. What Peter Berger calls cognitive contamination now reigns in thousands of churches and theological liberalism has created a system of empty and emptying churches and seminaries. Those who hold the beliefs of historic Christianity, he says, will lose social capital simply by opening their mouths. Why do you think so many Christians are afraid to speak out? The price of identification with our churches will only rise. We see it all around. Just recently, there was a woman in Canada who was rejected from a job because she went to a Christian college. Well-documented case. Pastors in Houston right now are having their sermons subpoenaed because they spoke out against man's depravity and outright immorality. There is no tolerance for free speech in America when it has to do with a Christian's humble, bold proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God in Christ in the public square. That's where we live, folks. This is where we're living. There is suffering going on in the West for our faith in Christ. And it would be very easy to lose heart. Jesus says, don't lose heart. I've overcome the world. It would be easy to lose heart, but it would be wrong. It would even be unfaithful of us to do so. But we do suffer for righteousness' sake. And like for those in the first century, things will get worse before Jesus comes back and makes all things better and makes all things right and restores and reconciles all things to himself. Suffering is our lot in life. It's not defeatist mentality, it's reality. The answer to our suffering... Our supreme example, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself. As Peter says, he has brought about this, this change in the hearts of all who love him and believe in him even though they cannot see him. But they rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. What did Jesus do? What did Jesus do to bring this, this change, this transformation of soul about? Jesus submitted himself to the Father's plan of redemption. He suffered for us. He went to the cross. The sinless, sovereign Savior took our place. 
the totally just one took all of unjust man's worst punishment. He turned evil against itself. He conquered sin and death. And he did so perfectly and he did so sinlessly. Verse 22 says, He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Verse 23 says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. He didn't didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. It was a path of humble obedience to the calling of the Father. And what Peter is saying here in verses 22 and 23 and even 24 has everything to do with Isaiah chapter 53. You've got to go to Isaiah 53 and see the the quotes as well as the allusions to the suffering servant. Peter presents Jesus as the suffering servant of the Lord, taking his language from Isaiah 53. 53 verse 7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He went to Calvary as a lamb that is led to slaughter, Isaiah 53, 7. He is without sin or deceit, quoting directly from verse 9 of Isaiah 53. And the sufferings of the Lord's servant were not for his own fault, but for the sins of others. He suffers to fulfill the will of God. Verse 10 said it was the Lord's will to cause him to suffer. It was the Lord's good pleasure to crush him. He's a willing sacrifice who, as verse 12 says, poured out his life unto death. He was humble in his silence. He was silent before the priests, before Pontius Pilate, before Herod. On the cross, he heard nothing but mockery of his enemies and even the thief cursing him. Peter would remember this so clearly, so vividly. He saw it. He, he, He was there. The silence of Jesus before the high priest that he could bear witness that when when Jesus was insulted, he didn't retaliate. He was an eyewitness that that Jesus was oppressed and afflicted and he was silent as a sheep before the shearers is silent. And what did Jesus do instead? Jesus entrusted himself. Jesus entrusted his soul to God. In the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that word entrusted is, is delivered up. In Isaiah 53, 6, it's, it's delivered himself up. He committed himself. He surrendered himself. He submitted himself to bear our sin and pay our penalty. This is what Jesus did. And in the deepest sense, this is describing Jesus' surrender of himself to bear the penalty for sin. Not his own sin, but ours. And not at the hands of men, but at the hands of God. It was God's good will to crush him. I want you to realize what Peter is not saying here. The knee-jerk reaction of, of, of human beings is, is to do one of two things that Peter is not saying. Realize that Peter is not commending the value of therapeutically expressing yourself when angered when wronged just let it all hang out just just 
blast them, let's lash out. Peter's not saying that. But what Peter is also not saying is, just stuff it in. Just, just keep it inside. It's, it's not suppression. Because both of those are self-centered solutions. Either suppressing it, being a martyr, being stoic about it, or just lashing out. Neither one of those things is the way of Christ. What Peter is saying is a third way. What Peter is showing to us, what the Holy Spirit is is revealing to us, is not our natural inclination. What he is saying is that we should repeatedly and continually commit those situations into God's hands. Every time it comes to your mind, every time you feel your soul harassed, this cannot be stressed strongly enough in our litigious context, in our these-are-my-rights-oriented time in which we live. My instinctive response when abused is to try to get even, to try to hurt in return for being hurt. What's that saying? How does it go? Hurt people hurt people? What do we do if we can't immediately retaliate? We threaten. I'm going to get you. Watch your back. Expect it when you least expect it. Because we want our enemy to to feel the fear that something or someone's coming after them. But these responses are, are natural only to people who depend upon themselves and believe that God does not have control of the situation. To the suffering person who trusts God's sovereignty, believes that God is indeed in control, there is another response. This response that was perfectly exhibited by Jesus. He trusted himself. He entrusted himself. He submitted himself. He committed himself to him who judges justly. He handed himself over to God the Father. God the Son handed himself over to God the Father. Jesus knew that that the Father is the one who judges justly. Jesus was conscious that God as judge was either going to do one of two things. Repay the wrongdoer justly, that ultimately the wrongdoer would be paid back for the wrong done without partiality. Short, tall, rich, poor, young, old, it wouldn't matter in God's sight. No standing there. It's without partiality. Or he would forgive the offender. Get this, based upon the shed blood of Christ. Jesus knew that the Father would either pay back the wrongdoer for the wrong done or to those who avail themselves of the, of the precious shed blood of Christ and by faith believe in that finished work, that they would be forgiven. They would be forgiven. Forgiveness paid for by the great cost of the blood of Christ. See, Jesus' suffering is seen in his sacrifice. He submitted himself. He suffered for us. He suffered for sin to save all who will believe. It was an atoning sacrifice. Verse 24 is one of the most explicit statements of the heart of the gospel in the entire Bible. 
Listen to it. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He himself. He did it. And he bore our sins in his body on the cross. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. There was a saving purpose in Christ's sacrifice. He suffered for you. It was vicarious. It was a substitution. I can't think of substitution without thinking of being in school way back when and there would be a substitute teacher show up and it was like open season. You know, it was like abuse the substitute as much as you can. It might have been just me, but I'm going to venture to guess that some of you also weren't so kind to your substitute teachers. Because, hey, you know, they, um, they're not your usual teacher. Jesus substituting himself for us was so different. So different. He put himself in our place to receive and to, to experience the full penalty that we deserve because of our sin. The fact that Jesus bore our sins meant that God the Father counted our sins against Christ. And in a way that we really don't realize, we don't fully understand, He laid on Him, as Isaiah 53, 6 says, the iniquity of us all. On Jesus was put the iniquity of us all. You go backpacking and you put a backpack on and you're like, oh, it's so heavy, I, I, I can't go, I've got this heavy weight on my back, I, I need someone to help me carry it, you know? Jesus had the full weight of Every sin that would ever be committed put on Him. We cannot fathom this. We cannot fully understand. The Father considered our sin as belonging to Christ. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. This substitution by our sin bearer. He was our sin bearer. Isaiah 53, 12 again. He bore the sin of many. He was the substitute for his people. He was the one that stood in their place. You know when you're watching a a war movie or something and they say, we need some volunteers to go out on the front line and maybe there's a guy there whose his little brother is about to go out and he goes, no, I'm going in his place, right? Or the Hunger Games, right? You think of Katniss taking her sister's place. But taking the place of of another is a is a noble action taking the place of mankind and paying the penalty for sin only god can do that only god can do that jesus again and again and again declared his deity he went to his death in our place and it was a substitutionary atonement That's the big theological word for it. Substitutionary atonement. Nothing less than the most amazing central doctrine of the Christian faith. Jesus took our place. He took our sin. He died for us. The death that we deserve to die. The sinless sovereign Savior. The perfect one. The just one. Taking all the sin upon himself. He allowed the most horrendous atrocity to be perpetuated against himself took the most despicable evil to be poured out on himself so when Isaiah is saying this 
in Isaiah 53, when Peter is recounting Isaiah 53, they are, they are looking to, they are thinking of the Old Testament sacrificial system where there was sin that needed to be taken care of. And there was a burden of sin that was going to be placed on a sacrificial animal. And you would put your hand on the head of the animal, confessing that your sins needed to be punished. And that animal would be killed. Death for the penalty of sin. And you would transfer the weight of the sin onto the substitute. And that would have to be repeated over and over and over again. Until Jesus came and once for all bore the sins of many. In those days... Before Christ, the sprinkling of the blood would signify the atonement, that forgiveness had, had come because a penalty had been paid by a substitute. But what did Peter say in the second verse of this letter? He's writing to the elect. He's writing to those who've been caused to be born again by, by God's Holy Spirit. And he says that it's according to the foreknowledge of God. It's according to the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood for sprinkling with Christ's blood to know that the penalty has been paid by your substitute by Christ the lamb who verse 19 says whose precious blood was shed whose precious blood Peter watched being shed there are things in the gospels where you kind of wonder did Peter get it you know he's telling Jesus not to suffer and he's He's denying Jesus and all sorts of things. But you can be assured, and especially based on John 21 when Peter recommissioned, when, when Peter was recommissioned by Jesus. Peter got it. Peter got it. There was, there was a glimpse of him catching the idea in Luke chapter 5 when, when Jesus is calling his disciples and, and he tells them after a whole night of fishing, why don't you go put your, your nets out over here? And Peter's like, Please, we know what we're doing. There's no fish. And they catch this huge catch of fish. And Peter's response, very telling, he says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. In the presence of the holiness of Christ, that's all we can confess. But then the same Peter sleeps through Jesus' agony in the garden before the cross. He doesn't know the cup that Jesus is going to drink, but here, now he knows. He knows the cup because he doesn't, he doesn't think lightly of his sin anymore. Don't think lightly of your sin. There was plenty of times in my life where I've thought very lightly of my sin. I would look around at other people and go, I'm not as bad as them. I'm not as bad as them. I'm not as bad as them. Not pointing at any of you guys in particular. But we, I would just justify myself and say, well, I'm not as bad. So I guess I'm pretty good. Don't think lightly of your sin. We have all kinds of ways to explain away our sin. You need to think again. That's what Peter did. He thought again. Because Jesus bore the sin of many, this spotless lamb. And that changes everything. His suffering example has these amazingly awesome saving implications. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You can't get there on your own. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life. God has given this eternal gift, this immeasurable gift, this indescribable 
gift. What's the best gift you ever received? Humanly speaking, car, boat, home. What have you got? Watch, gold watch. What's the best gift you've ever received? It pales in comparison to this immeasurable, indescribable gift because Christ's suffering in our place has saving implications. It says in verse 24, by his wounds you have been healed. By his wounds you have been healed. Now some of you might say, well, Mike, you're sick today, so you must be sinning because you're not healed. Healed of what? Cancer, a debilitating debilitating accident, uh, a cold or the flu? By his wounds you have been healed. Healed from what? By his wounds you have been healed from sin. From its debilitating effects, from its power and its penalty. You've been saved from the wrath of God against your sin because Jesus took it all. Jesus paid it all. So if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, you are healed from the curse of sin by the great physician. The great physician. His his wounds heal suffering at its root, at at the curse of sin. It's justification by faith in Christ alone. This instantaneous legal act by which God declares your sins forgiven and Christ's righteousness yours. And you have union with Christ when you come to faith in Him. Union with Him and His saving death. Because you died with Him and you rose with Him and you are to now live in that new position, that new standing. Christ's finished work is the basis for Peter's exhortation to live for righteousness' sake. That you have died in respect to sin and its penalty and power and now live to righteousness. Verse 25 says, you were straying like sheep. You know how sheep stray? They keep going. They don't turn back and go, ooh, I'm far from home. Let's put the GPS on. You, you, you get lost, you just... Look for a, uh, a familiar landmark or you use your phone and you, you get on the maps or, or you use the North Star or something and you can find your way home. But the sheep, they're, they're not that smart and they will just keep wandering and go unless, unless the shepherd goes and, and brings them back. You were continually strained like sheep. That's what it means, continually strained. Not just once or twice, but continually wandering like sheep, prone to wander like sheep. But now, he says, you've returned. Now, it doesn't mean they were with Jesus before. It means they were never with him before. They were going away like a sheep, hell-bent in sin as a person repudiating God. He says, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseers of, uh, overseer of your souls. What does that mean? It means that Jesus, Jesus brought you back to God. Jesus brought you to God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 30, by his doing you are in Christ. Peter in 3, 8, uh, chapter 3, verse 18 says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. You're in Christ today? You, you're assured of your salvation in Christ? It's because God, God brought you to himself, drew you to himself. In Christ, you've been brought to God by God. Not just saved by him in personally and for you to find your way, but brought into relationship with him. 
brought into deep, abiding relationship in Him. I think there's something that you need to see here in terms of what, what Jesus is being called. It says you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I love the picture in the Bible of Jesus, the good shepherd. I love that picture. What does shepherd mean? It means pastor. Have you ever stopped to think that Jesus is your pastor? You have human pastors and elders, but Jesus is your main pastor. Now, you don't say to me or other pastors, hey, I already have one, you know, don't want to listen to you, I already have one. Not that way, because God gives under shepherds and calls people to pastor and to elder. But here, shepherd is pastor and overseer is elder. Episcopos, guardian of your soul. He's the shepherd and guardian of your soul. Jesus is your pastor and your elder. Have you ever thought about this before? He's your pastor. He loves you. He teaches you. He provides for you. He cares for you. He's your elder. He keeps watch over your soul. He's he's spent for your soul at the cross. He cares for you so much. Why did Peter say 1 Peter 5, 7? Casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. He's your pastor. He's your elder. The Lord Jesus. J.I. Packer said it this way, to be right with God the judge is a great thing. Right? To be right with God the judge is a, is a, is a great thing. The judge's wrath against your, your, your errors have, is, is gone. But he says to be cared for and loved by God the Father is a greater thing. We do not fully feel the wonder of the passage from death to life, which takes place in the new birth, until we see it as a transition. Not simply out of condemnation into acceptance, but out of bondage and destitution into the safety, certainty, and enjoyment of the family of God. It is a personal relationship that God calls you to. And that changes everything. And it changes everything about how we live. Peter has already told us we're called to be holy. We're called as living stones built up into a spiritual house. We're called to glorify God in obedience and be living examples of the gospel because people are watching and seeing. We're to follow in his steps. What exactly does that mean to follow in Christ's steps? I mentioned last week, it doesn't mean, you know, wearing WWJD bracelets and saying, what would Jesus do right this moment? Those are the wrong letters. What did Jesus do? Jesus already did the finished work. But he's also at work now, interceding for the saints. So the idea is, sheep following the shepherd, follow where he leads, based on what he did and what he is doing. Follow in his steps means literally follow in the line of his footprints. To follow a person's footprints means to move in the direction they're going. The question is, are you going with Jesus? Are you going with Jesus? If you are, that means you're following him and his word. If you are, that means you are acknowledging Christ's lordship over everything and the authority of the word of God. I tell you, the first two things that go by the wayside when people start to slip and slide as professing believers is they, they jettison, they throw overboard the lordship of Christ and the authority of the word of God. And it's happening in churches 
in, in assemblies, in, in Christian schools. Uh, people are caving in left and right. And when Peter says, you were straying, but, but now you're not, because you've been returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls, he's saying, you stay under that umbrella. You stay under your pastor and your elder, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord God, thank you that you are who you say you are. Thank you, Lord, that, that for Christians, life on earth is as bad as it's going to get. Lord, for non-Christians, life on earth is as good as it's going to get. And Lord, we, we who believe have joy that we're saved, but we're sober to reach the lost because, because we don't want them to, to incur your wrath experience your wrath Lord we want to glorify you we want to have to have cooperation with what you're doing and sanctifying us in this progressive lifelong work of yours where you use us as well Lord we want to persevere we don't want to throw away our faith we, we, we know that in Christ we're kept by your power and we persevere because you are powerful and so we praise you for that Lord, we pray that you would help us to trust you, to not lose heart. We thank you, Jesus, our pastor, elder, for caring for our soul and guarding our souls and changing our perspective into an eternal perspective. We pray in Christ's name.